Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Valhalla Movement podcast. We've got a very special guest today um, with a wealth of knowledge that you guys are really need to, you know, you guys need to check out. I mean, you got to check his website, you got to check his YouTube videos and, and his podcast that he's done with other people. His name is Daniel Vitalis, and he is incredibly, incredibly interesting. So, um, well, thank you, Daniel, for being on the podcast with us today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I li- interesting's cool. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I want people to to go into really looking at your website at the same time as when we're talking. So I know I'll I'll just plug it right away. It's danielvitalis.com. So if you guys want to check out some of his blogs and some of his content on there, just great to uh, to scour through. So so how's it going, Daniel? How's uh, how's life treating you at this point? <laughs> Things are amazing, man. Things are really good. You know, obviously the vicissitudes of life, ups and downs, but all in all, I'm pretty excited to be here. Oh, great. Great. Yeah, it's always good to hear that people are happy to be on planet Earth. <laughs> it's a good opportunity. Yeah. Um, okay, so you have this, this, I guess, concept that you've kind of created and, and, and have been talking about for a while now, um, and it branches off into all kinds of different facets of life, but I would love for you to explain what the term rewild yourself means. I mean, it seems self-explanatory, but I think there's a deeper meaning behind it. Yeah, I mean, I th- ever since I was really young, I, I've been really interested in in human survival and what our survival needs are. And I think because what I saw was that we had all of everything sort of provided for us in a really... Um, we were really pampered growing up, you know, and we never really needed to think about our survival needs. And I was really interested in that. I remember as a kid seeing, you know, like National Geographic magazine and you would see these aboriginal peoples like living in the jungle or living in the deserts. And I would wonder like about their lives. And I would wonder about, you know, what the survival needs of, of humans are when we removed all the pampering of society. And that interest has unfolded for me over the course of years. You know, I had the interesting opportunity to skip out on a lot of the kind of things people um, grew up with, doctors and dentists and school. And I was really able to skip out of all of that, sort of slip through the cracks of that, follow my passion. And, and as I followed this idea of human survival, what I learned was that when we live sort of closer to the earth, we're a lot healthier. And the further we get away from that, the sicker we get. And it's really obvious, I think, if we put it in the context of um, a wild animal. I think it's obvious if we you know, I love to talk about if we took a chimpanzee or an orangutan or a gorilla, you know, organisms are really closely related to, and we took them out of their natural world and we stuck them in a hotel. <laughs> and we give them a lazy boy chair and we give them the hotel food and we have them watch HBO all day and we have them shower in chlorinated water and breathe the recirculated heated air. How long till their health would start to break down? It's so obvious mm. that if we wanted to keep that animal healthy, we'd have to create at least an artificial habitat resembling their natural habitat, and we'd need to take care of their needs the way nature took care of their needs. Now, the thing that we don't seem to be able to realize about ourselves is that we're doing the same thing to ourselves. We, we do come from a natural habitat, uh, but we've left it a really long time ago. And really, if we look at the science that's available to us today with that ever-changing you know, scientific um, uh, monologue about this story of us going from being you know, hunter-gatherers to, this, to going to the stars, you know, this sort of unfolding story we're in, mm-hmm. we see this, this crazy thing happens 10,000 years ago. People decide, rather than eating wild foods, they're going to do something dramatically different. They're going to start to plant foods 
And by doing that, by putting those seeds in the ground and then harvesting the seeds from those and then choosing the best of those seeds and doing it again, they start this process called domestication. Mm-hmm. Domestication means um, to be of the house. And what I mean, this it changed everything. They call it the Neolithic Revolution because it was a total revolution. We stopped traveling for food. We became sedentary. We stood in one place now. We kept tearing up the earth to plant these annual plants. In doing that, we changed the plants. We changed ourselves. We started changing animals. We, we took nature under our own control, forced it, enslaved it into a paradigm that was never going to be sustainable. And we've been doing it for 10,000 years. It's been like a domino effect that's speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. And it's a hyperbolic curve that takes us further and further and further to degeneration, disease, sickness. So even though we're having all this amazing technology, it's like a renaissance of technology, what we also see is that our bodies are falling apart so quickly that we are all suffering from this thing we call degenerative disease. Mm-hmm. And it means to degenerate. So my big point here is we think we're evolving so fast right now, but really where our bodies are devolving, they're degenerating at the same time that our technology is evolving. So we may be on the path to creating a super intelligent machine, but boy, we're creating a super stupid body in the process. And so I talk about this thing rewilding. The idea is, hey, it's interesting. It's, it, well, hold on. Just, just before you get that, I just had this thought about you're talking about degenerating and our bodies degenerating. It's funny because if we were, you know, let's say we were the Neanderthal human being back 10,000 years ago, we had more hair, we were stronger, we probably had better vision. We had more like just general sense and connection to the earth. And now here we are balding, getting fatter. We have all these degenerative diseases as you're talking about. And we're less strong. Our eyes are all weak. You know, I'm wearing glasses, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, we talk about progress. I guess it depends how you define it, right? Like how it's such a, a, a black and white. It's not a black and white, sorry. It's such a gray zone of the figuring out are we moving forward or is it is the fact that we have a computer in our pocket better is the fact that we're doing this podcast and we have a microphone and we can talk to each other from around the world progress or are, are we kind of missing something along the way and I, and I think from my understanding that's my understanding of what kind of rewild is but I would love to to hear what uh, how all of this combined into what you uh, what you're advocating today well you just said all right so you just really summed up and so let me clean up the edges of that So Neanderthals, interestingly, Neanderthals were a cousin species, or perhaps some are arguing maybe a subspecies of us, but we, Homo sapiens sapien, actually moved into the area where Neanderthal lived and either extincted or pushed Neanderthal out. Now, Neanderthals did breed in with us a little bit, but 200,000 years ago are where we can currently trace the first of us, the first Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. So we we are a slightly different version than you know we're the 2.0 we're not the neanderthal we're slightly different but 200,000 years ago those first homo sapiens are um, modern forms they're identical to us so we today could be walking down the street and a 200,000 year old if we could somehow go back 200,000 years ago and grab an individual from then and bring them here and walk them down the street in a regular um, you know sort of modern outfit you would not be able to tell the difference you'd think Wow, that guy's badass. You know, he he'd look more muscular. He would look, but he wouldn't have hair on his face. He wouldn't have thick eyebrow ridges. His knuckles wouldn't drag. They weren't these cavemen. They were us, mm-hmm. more robust form of us. Mm-hmm. Now, when we look even at indigenous people living today, this is really interesting. This I think is really key for people to hear. 
when we look at people who are still hunter gatherers, there's not a lot of that, you know, I mean, it's not like we can, you know, go out into the there's forest, very few. And, but, but those people have the muscle mass of our modern Olympic athletes. Think about that. These are people who don't work out. They don't go to the gym. They have the muscle mass of our best athletes, our top people, right? Like <laughs> about their eyesight, not their wear glasses. They don't get diabetes. They don't get cancer. They don't get heart disease. They don't have the arthritic conditions that are indicative of farming peoples. They, um, I think one of the most important pieces of this is that they don't have dental decay the way that we do. So I think that's a really, because um, I think our teeth are really the real window into our health and we see that um, you know, our teeth have become more and more deranged um, and we use more and more surgery and uh, orthodontic, uh, you know, we use braces to try to force those back in so we look healthy again. Because mm -hmm. some of us are being born with malformed skulls because we're so um, malnourished, not just from food, but from sunlight, from good quality air, and good quality water. So the point is that, you know, I'm not trying to be, um, you know, I'm not trying to say that, you know, living wild in nature was a utopia, but it was definitely a lot better than what we have going on here. Indigenous peoples work an average of 14, 12 to 14 hours a week to secure their needs. We work 40 plus and we get sick from it. So and it's we just dead. We're, we're, we're really, we're in the, I think ultimately we all sense, I mean, if I look at what you guys are doing there with your project, it's like, you're doing that because the world that you were born into is not fulfilling to us. We feel like there's a missing piece. It's like, we feel like we've been segregated out of the connectivity with nature. And what we're doing now is we're creating this connectivity through the internet, which is amazing. But it's still it's virtual. It's not a real. The connection. internet is is a, is a tough thing, because I agree. The internet is like it's bringing us back. And my father, my own father, says, you know, the internet is what's going to save humanity. It's going to reconnect us again. And I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky thing. The internet has all the world's information, which is brilliant. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating to th think that anything I want to research, anything I want to know, technically I can know at the tip of my fingers. And yet. Ironically, it is a quick joke here. I open up Google and sometimes I have no idea what to type in. And it's just like the saddest thing ever. But, <laughs> but, but what's amazing, but what's, so you have all this information, but the other thing is you also have all of this disinformation. We have this illusion of choice where we think that more choice and more information is actually better for us. But I feel like it's actually enslaved us. It's like we're, we're constantly, we're becoming ADD because of it because we literally are absorbing so much data, but we're not truthfully learning it. We're just kind of absorbing it and, and, and hearing about it, but we don't really grasp or understand how these things work. And we have completely lost our way in this. Um, and, and, and from where, where our food comes from, how, where our sewage goes, where our, how the water gets into to our taps, we have just completely lost touch with everything around us. And our answer to it so far seems to be money. It's just the economy. It's like the economy will save us all. And as long as we invest in that and we work hard and we do our 40 hours a week, that that is, that's earning a hard living. That's, 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 you go to school, you, you do your job and that's what life is about. But it's not what life is about. Life is not about working. It's not about going to school necessarily. It doesn't mean that it's not about learning. It is learning about our mistakes, learning about our surroundings, learning about what's going on, but we are completely disconnected from that. And what I want to know, and I like to, I like to focus more on solutions because we all know the world is fucked up. Okay. And, and it, it's shits. Like you said, we all have this idea that we're going in this wrong direction. We all feel like we're missing something. 
and and we're doing everything possible to try and make it better and we, we, we come up with what we call solutions which is like putting fluoride and chlorine in the water because it's dirty and then we think oh yeah that, that's great no problem but what are in your opinion how do we start moving away from this how do we start getting towards the solution is it is it rewilding ourselves is it going back to is it you know and this is the, this is the argument that i think will never win anybody over oh let's go back to being nomadic caveman people like how do we how do we blend what we know now and what we have today versus what we kind of knew then and what we should probably still know today okay you i mean there's a thousand things i want to say in response to that um so solutions yeah i mean we need them and um this would be a lot of mental masturbation if we didn't have some so what's the point of all this you know before i said okay let's imagine we take that orangutan and put him in the marriott and uh hand him a mug of joe from dunkin donuts and a you know a big mac and and we watch his health deteriorate right now the thing is is that let's imagine that orangutan does not have the option to go back to his wild environment that's us mm -hmm. homo sapien has and the thing that a lot of us don't realize is as beautiful as the woods around Montreal are right now, that's not a natural forest, right? Not that's a forest that's, that's struggling to get back, and that's most of the world, right? We, we don't have the diversity of species that we had when we were wild. We don't have the, the quantity of wild food available to us. We're dra dramatically overpopulated. So we're not going to go back to that, not anytime soon. So not unless we were forced to by unforeseen events. So, mm -hmm. uh, so what do we do? So we're in that zoo, right? We need to make that zoo more like our wild environment. That's the point of a zoo. A good zoo is going to create habitats that resemble the habitats of the animals that were in it. So here's what I've identified. Four things that, you know, I, I identified, but I mean, I didn't make them up. So um, four things I've identified that are really crucial for us to begin rewilding, get our health back on track, and I think start moving us in the right direction. Because here's what I don't think is the right direction. As much as it seems like a hybrid car is the right direction, I, I personally disagree. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it's like what you said, the internet gives us that, it gives us information, but not experience, mm -hmm. right? So we, we get all this information and we think we know about things that we've never done, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we get sold this bill of goods. And one of the bills of goods we've been sold is that recycling and driving hybrid cars is like going to answer it. And I just love this analogy that if you're driving, uh, you're trying to get to Canada in a car, but you're driving south toward Mexico, slowing down never gets you to Canada. No matter how much you slow down, no matter how much we slow down our energy consumption, mm -hmm. you know, mining, no matter how slow we go, like, oh, we'll use hybrid energy instead. <laughs> We're still driving cars made of the same stuff. It's still the same paradigm, slowed down. It's mm -hmm. not taking us in the right direction. So here's some things I think take us in the right direction. Earth, water, air, fire, those sound abstract. Let's make them into something more um, usable. Earth, food that you eat. Water, the fluids that you drink. Air, the gases that you breathe. Fire, the energy you absorb from the sun. Those are our four basic survival needs. That's it. It's really a really simple package. We are this type of ape that moves through the world consuming the four elements and then eliminating the four elements. So we take earth in as food, then we poop earth back out. We drink water in, then we pee water back out. We breathe air in, then we breathe air back out, and we absorb photonic energy from the sun, and then we sweat that energy back out. It's so simple. So if we look at those four things, we can start to determine, like, wait a second, 
the earth that I'm eating, what is it? Well, is it contain like genetically modified? Is it got genome from other organisms? Is it genetically modified? Is it hydrogenated? Is it plasticized? Is it um, deranged and rancid? Or is it uh, as close to the earth as I can get it? For instance, people utilizing their farmer's markets for food that's grown very locally and people going out on foraging trips and actually gathering wild foods. Those two strategies right there. And for the average person, if that's way outside of your reach, switching to organic food so you know you're not eating genetically modified Monsanto patented enslaved organisms. Then that's the first major step. And just getting into a, a, a healthy eating pattern and a healthy bowel movement elimination pattern. Puts mm -hmm. a good relationship with the earth. Same thing can be said of water. We it's such a tough thing though. Just before we go into water, there's so many people. We all know this. I, I equate it to like smoking, right? It's like everyone knows smoking is bad for you, yet we still smoke. Everyone knows that eating McDonald's and and GMO foods and junk foods are bad for us, yet we still consume them. I I don't. I guess I don't understand. Because I consume them too from time to time. Like I'm not going to lie. I'm 25 years old and I'm, I don't want to say I'm new to this. I've, I've been exploring this area and trying to move in this pattern and direction for years now. And I'm getting better and better at it. But it's a, it's a process. Like It's like we have to unlearn all the things, everything that I've ever known. Like when I drive by McDonald's and I smell that smell, you know, part of the, the kid inside of me gets excited and thinks – you know, oh, McDonald's, it sounds great. And toy. yeah, exactly. Right. They're brilliant marketing. They just ruined us. But the, the reality is we have to unlearn all of that stuff. And then the, the noise that comes around like, okay, is, is this really organic? Right. Number one, like I see food, it's labeled green or it's labeled organic. Now I, I have a hard time trusting any one of them. And unless I want to grow my own food, which is actually the, the route that I'm personally trying to take now, which is like, okay, Let's, you know, build airships and grow on food inside and build greenhouses and, 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 and practice permaculture and see what we can do with that. That just doesn't seem feasible for everyone. I mean, we have too many people that if every single person wanted to do that, I think, yeah, maybe we have some technology and if we were to develop it, we could possibly do it. But the reality is that it's just not going to happen. Like it's not people – are, people are very happy going to their local grocery store and picking up – the avocados that came from halfway around the world like they're happy doing that so like i would love to know what are you doing for that are you actually going on these foraging trips are you actually eating all organic at this point like i, I see what you're drinking which looks awesome so yeah. you definitely look healthy i gotta tell you that much but um do you find you yourself struggling with that sometimes wow no um but in the beginning i did um, but I was really blessed to start on the food path when I was uh, 15 years old. So, and like I said, I lived really outside of, um, it's hard for me almost to describe, but I really did avoid a lot of what society had offered me. Um, not through um, the brilliance of personal choice, but through the hardships of my upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I started on an alternative food path really early on, and I didn't, have that social pressure to eat the way everyone else did in the same way that I think a lot of people do. So I understand that it's very challenging. Um, I have been on all organic food for geez, a decade at least. Um, and yeah, I do the foraging trips and I do the farmer's markets and that's where my food really comes from. And obviously we all have to make exceptions and we can't live by super fixed dogmatic rules. But I think our dogma, our, our variance 
lessons and lessons over time. As we attribute more pleasure to what we're doing now and more pain to what we used to do. But that's the key. As long as we have pleasure associated to things like McDonald's food and we have pain associated to things like organic food, for instance, let's say you decide you're going to go eat organic food and you go to Safeway or whatever your supermarket is and you don't really, you've never done this before and you notice that the really firm, crisp celery that's commercial is 99 cents and the organic stuff is floppy and limp. You can fold it in half and touch the ends together and it's $2.99. And you go, no, I'm going to do organic and you buy that and you bring it home but then you realize your salad dressing is not organic. You don't know what to do and you just try to eat it. <laughs> and you're, it's going to be a painful experience. But then your mind reminds you of the dopamine rush you get at McDonald's. And there's a toy and the smells and the colors are right and, the mar and it's 99 cents and it's all that pleasure. So we need to figure out how to associate more pleasure to what we want to do and more pain to what we don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Now another piece of eating, right, is really important here is that we are dis our culture has encouraged us to become dissociative. Mm -hmm. So that means that when we eat, we tend to go to our happy place, we dissociate. <laughs> So notice when you're eating, if you're dissociating, are you present, tasting, controlling the food in your mouth, being present, how is this making me feel, or are you going off to your happy place, crunch, 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 gone, right? It's like, it's the same as using drugs, that's what, it's what we do, it's, it's the same with anything we can dissociate with, right? People's mm -hmm. addictions, people who act like they don't have addictions are lying, everybody's <laughs> got them. And they use them to dissociate, and culture wants us dissociating all the time. It doesn't want us to be present. You know, mm -hmm. we think meditation, for instance, is dissociating like you go away when you meditate. Not true. Real meditation is becoming a laser beam present here where you are now. Experiencing. I tell that to everyone. Anyway, I'm so happy you said that. Well, so what do we do when we eat? We dissociate. So McDonald's is a temple of dissociation. It's an it's, it's a opium den. Oh, they, they mastered it. They're like the cocaine of dissociation. They studied the homo sapien organism and figured out how to create its perfect opium den of food. So that's what it is. So you need to create that with the food you want to eat. Here's a great way to get started. Go find the finest restaurant in the area where you live. For instance, if we were in Montreal and we found the finest restaurant that the wealthiest elite of that area go to, and we went we sat down, we'd see some pretty nice ambiance. Mm -hmm. Beautiful colors, candlelight, fresh plants. And then we'd open the menu and we'd notice wild foraged maitake mushrooms, wild foraged fiddleheads and leeks, grass-fed bison, mm -hmm. wild antelope, wild-caught this, wild-caught that, homegrown. Everything would be this food we're talking about eating. Guess what? The wealthy elite of the world eat that food. They don't eat McDonald's. You don't see the limos pulling up at the takeout. They're eating the food we're talking about eating, and they found a way to create the dopamine rush, opium den, dopamine experience that we're looking for with that kind of food. When you do that, though, let's say that you budget once a month or once a week, you're going to go to a nice restaurant and eat this kind of food we're talking about. Then you can start to associate pleasure to that kind of food, and you can learn innovative ways to use those ingredients that isn't trying to just eat them. So I when think, I say, wait, one more thing, when I yeah. say wild food, I think people picture out there like nibbling on sticks and <laughs> scraping bark off things with your teeth. No, no, no. We're talking about that same stuff that's at the finest restaurants in the world, 
bringing it home and preparing amazing meals that nourish the body, mind, and soul and create pleasure associations to quality food. Absolutely. I mean, you, you nailed a couple of things that I think are incredibly important that people need to realize. Number one is presence. Are you present when you're eating or are you are you dissociating? Are you somewhere else? Are we all as while we're eating, are we thinking about the movie that we're gonna go watch after? You know what I mean? Like are we really thinking about what we're putting in our mouths and what we're eating? Because at the end of the day, it's the most cliche thing to say, but we are what you you are what you eat. It's it's the truth. And so the one thing that people don't talk a lot about is that our portions. You know, we're eating way too much of everything. And we think that like, oh, we need to have this food pyramid that they invented that we have to eat like, I don't even know how many glasses of milk a day and all this chronic crap and craziness. I don't know. I don't know if that's, you know, like, I don't know if we really need to eat that much. I think if we were eating healthier foods, we would probably be able to content ourselves with less. And that would make up for some of the price variants that you talked about, the celery, you know, celery at a you know, regular grocery store, a dollar, celery at a granite grocery store, $3. The reality is, though, you could probably eat one of those $3 celeries and feel much better and actually get all the nutrients that you need from it versus 10 of those $1 uh, celeries, you know what I mean? Okay. So people have to understand that we have to value, it's not about like how much you're eating, it's about how rich are you eating. I think that's, there's a very, very big difference between that. Um, so many. You just had so many things. Hang, hang on. You guys got to jump in. So many things. It's like, first, I just want to point out, yeah, I mean, you look at, I like to think about the people in the movie theater who have the gigantic bucket of popcorn. Everything's dark. You've got this visual sound experience. That's total dissociation. I love it, too. I totally get it. I love it. And when I go to a movie, I, I lament not having something to crunch on so I can associatively eat, right? Yeah, corn, I'm all thinking. Um, you're really nailing it there about the, the what's in the food because, you know, I, I did a film recently called Hungry for Change, and in that film, um, I, I say a, a thing about uh, people being overfed um, but starving to death at the mm -hmm. same time, right? So we're this is a really strange thing that we're able to do because food kind of if we're going to roughly break up the food paradigm here, what we'd see is that that nutrients fall into two categories. We have a category called macronutrients and a category called micronutrients. And macronutrients are calories. That's fat, carbohydrate, protein, alcohol. Those are all calorie sources, fuel sources. But then we have all those micronutrients, calcium, magnesium, right, sodium, potassium, and all of those vitamins that we need, vitamin A, vitamins B, all of those. Um, what we have is food that's really high in calories and really low in nutrients out there. So the, in order to get enough nutrients, you have to eat too many calories, which makes you fat. This is so simple. And when you start eating quality food, there's so many nutrients that you get the satiation signal earlier so you don't need to eat as many calories of that food. Mm -hmm. In nature, this was never an issue because food in nature is low in calories and high in nutrients. Mm -hmm. Domesticated food, we breed to be high in calories. Unfortunately, it ends up being really low in nutrients. You know. There, every study I've seen on this, you compare anything, a wild blueberry to a cultivated blueberry, you always end up with the wild one has more nutrients than the cultivated one, no matter how good you grow it. So that's just the reality of the domestication paradigm. Uh, but you're right. And then the other thing about the cost is I marvel at this, that people think food shouldn't cost them anything, but they're totally comfortable with a $500 phone that's going to last two years. It's crazy. They're totally comfortable with tricked out rims on their car. They're totally comfortable to pay for all that, right? 
really expensive outfits, shirts that cost 150, Lululemon pants that cost almost 200 bucks, but they don't want to spend any money on food. And the thing is, is that we spend less on food here than anybody, and we have more calories than anybody, and we, we are afraid to spend money on food. We, we balk at the prices. So I think we need to change our paradigm there and realize that you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. Now, you know that if you're going to buy clothes, you know that if you buy Walmart shirts compared to buying a high-end designer shirt, that it's not just the label. People are always like, oh, it's just the label. It's not just the label. It's better stitching, better materials, better service, better craftsmanship, all of that. Mm-hmm. It's the same with your food. When you buy food that's well-grown, you are buying what you're going to be made of. Why would you buy low-end building blocks for yourself? You, who do you think you're cheating? Yourself. You buy low-quality building materials for your home. See what happens. So it's really ironic because we don't want to spend any money on food. Now, here's the trick of it, though. There is a hack. The farmer's market is really the key to this. And then beyond that, growing your food, the next key, beyond that, harvesting your own food from nature, even better. Now, listen, here's why. When, you know this, but I'm saying this to the listeners. Yeah, no, please. Yeah. When you go to the farmer's market, you're cutting out the middleman. Mm-hmm. So if I go to a Whole Foods market, you know, bless you Whole Foods, thanks for what you've done, and your prices are really high. So if I want to buy celery there, I'm paying the price they bought the celery for, then the price to ship it there, then the price for the mortgage on the Whole Foods and the lighting and the heating and the staffing and the bags and all of that. So if I can cut all that out, you'll find that the food at the farmer's market is usually cheaper than commercial food. Mm-hmm. So you get organic, local, highly nutrient, freshly cut food. It's a big difference between a piece of celery cut yesterday and one cut a week and a half ago. You get that fresh food right there, better prices than you're getting at the supermarket. So that's key. The second piece is if you eat animal food, you can buy this stuff in bulk, right? So you buy a sheep, for instance, all cut in your freezer. Instead of eating 100 animals in a year, you're only eating one. Instead of eating parts of 100 different ones, you get that for a very low price. So that's key. When you grow food, now this is obvious, you turn you know, a seed that doesn't even cost a penny into many dollars worth of food. And when you wild harvest, I mean, now you're, you're talking about just – the the energy of walking your ass out into the woods. So I think um, it's a multi-pronged approach. I mean, you know, I, I, this is my second year growing food. Okay. And uh, I've been fairly successful at it. I've, you know, grown a couple of tomatoes here and there and a couple of cucumbers and a couple of everything. The difference is that it's definitely not enough for me to be able to live off of just yet. And I look at my 90 year old grandma, I'm Italian and she, you know, she, she's got it down. She grows 10 times more than I do. And it's on, I I don't even understand how she does it. I really don't. But it's learning those skills that is going to be valuable to us. If we had, if we had to have any school that would change our psyche and change our values today, it's if we can invest in our schools into learning tangible, serious stuff, it would be so much better than learning economics. And, and, and we don't even learn economics. How many people know where money comes from? fuck's sake. I mean, Jesus Christ. We all use it for everything, and yet we have no idea where it comes from. Totally different topic. But point is, the idea is that we, it is hard. It's really hard to do that. But I think it's possible. I think we have to, if we all start moving that way, and if we all like take this collective step, and we, we, we solve what I call the tragedy of the commons, right? Which is, what is good for me as an individual is that I have the big house, white picket fence, and a nice car, and all that kind of stuff. Not not physically what's good for me, but what I think is good for me in terms of value. 
But that's actually the tragedy of the comments because what that is is actually bad. Everything I buy, everything I do, all the cell phones that I, that I intake, all the, the, the bad food that I consume is only making it worse and worse and worse. We're just going further and further down the path. I think you nailed it earlier, which was brilliant. If you're trying to get to Canada and you start driving towards Mexico, even if you slow down, it doesn't matter. You're never going to get to Canada. It's such a brilliant – it's like it, it's, it makes total sense. So the question is – when does the pendulum swing back? You know, like, what are we going to do? And, and I, you know, nobody has that answer, I guess. But I think it's happening. I think it's happening. I think it is happening. And the key right now is that we just point our locus of focus towards what we want, mm -hmm. right? The problem is, is if we keep staying, fo we, we keep pointing at Mexico, wanting to get to Canada, it doesn't matter what you want. You know, it really doesn't matter what you want if you don't turn the thing around. And I like this idea of, you know, I'm really into wilderness survival. I'm just about to leave in the morning for a four-day um, navigation trip into into the mountains. and Awesome. I, I love doing things like that. And there's this idea, you know, I also just recently joined a search and rescue team and studying lost person behavior. And I've been lost myself, and I know what that's like because uh, you realize you don't know where you are and or maybe you've lost the trail. And there is a desire to panic and to run. I don't know why, but we do. We want to panic and run. And, and what we tend to do is move in big circles, and we, we are, the thing we avoid doing is stopping, just stopping, becoming present, and then asking ourselves this really important question, what's my last known point? Where was my last known point, where I last knew where I was? We want to look at overall at human beings, right? We say, what's the last point that we knew things were making sense? It's 10,000 years ago just before we start farming. It really is. Now, that doesn't mean that we can go back to that. Hmm. But we'd have to backtrack ourselves very slowly. It's going to take a while. It took us 10,000 years to get here. But the thing is, is if you picture this, you keep bringing up the economy, and it's so important right now because the thing about tribal peoples living indigenously as hunter-gatherers is that the person who's the chief, you know, we picture him to be like our commander-in-chief, right? <laughs> biggest house on the lot right guarded doesn't have no 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 the chief is the guy who everybody feels has the most wisdom and that's yeah. it he still has to hunt and gather his own food and guess what if he's not really good at hunting and gathering there's no way he's becoming the chief that's mm -hmm. why they want him to be the chief the chief has to work the shaman has to work everybody has to contribute there's nobody who gets a free ride because there isn't enough surpluses now, when you start farming, for instance, 10,000 years ago with the introduction of barley and wheat as crops, suddenly you start to end up with more calories than the tribe needs. Mm -hmm. More calories means surpluses of energy, which means certain people don't have to work anymore. Soon as somebody doesn't have to work anymore, they realize pretty quick that they're going to need delegates to protect them. So that starts to, so now we have a ruling class, they're going to want a martial class, mm -hmm. protect their power. And they're also going to want a priesthood to help keep the people entranced and dissociated so that they'll continue to produce the surpluses for them. Very quickly, we end up with a hierarchical pyramid structure with these powerful elites at the top and their priesthood and their martial classes beneath them. We know that that sucks. We know we want out of that. The last known point was when we were communal hunting and gathering. Now, we're not going to get back to hunting and gathering anytime soon. We limited, but not the way we were. So I think what the future is about is people creating self-contained ecosystems. That's permaculture. That's this earthship concept. 
where maybe we can't have a massive um, environment to hunt and gather in yet, but we can have small ones mm -hmm. where we do uh, sustainable agriculture projects and we create healthy habitats in our little human zoo. And then the idea, which I think you guys are onto, is those healthy habitats connect to other healthy habitats and they start networking and the space between them fills in with habitat such that we start to create like a, a viral, exponentially growing um, last known point. I, I say this all the time and this and I, I say this because I'm biased. I mean, I studied uh, marketing and entrepreneurship and this kind of stuff. And what I know best is marketing. That's what I do best. I do podcasts, I do videos, websites, this kind of stuff. And I always say that the green movement needs the marketing genius that McDonald's had when they put the toys in the, in the, in the, in the food. You know what I mean? When they associated that and when they made that, if we made green cool, if we made like, oh, the person who grows his own tomato, he is cooler than the guy who buys it at the grocery store. Now, all of a sudden, things start to shift. And I don't understand, this is what drives me nuts, is that there's so many people who know this, right? Like rich people or there's successful actors. And I don't understand why they don't, they don't say that. Like, why don't they use their fame? Like, I, I, I make this joke all the time. Brad Pitt can move a mountain if he wanted to. Why? Because he would, he would tweet out that he wanted a whole bunch of people to show up to this random place that he would be. And everyone would take a piece of the mountain and move it to wherever he wanted it to be. So, so, so I have a friend and I have a couple friends in Hollywood. I have a friend who's a very up-and-coming actress right now. Mm. And um, she comes to Maine, visits me, goes foraging, you know, does all these things. We go camping. We, you know, she's into plant medicine. We, we explore all these kind of things. Now, she has brought spring water on the Ellen DeGeneres show in a mason jar. Mm. She, has, she <laughs> has talked about foraging on, you know, the Conan O'Brien show. I've seen her do that. The thing is, is that they're not giving her the space to really talk about it, right? Oh, she mentions it and it's all of a sudden... Yeah, they edit it, they shut it down because nobody wants to break the trance because the trance funnels power up the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And so you're absolutely right, they could, but you absolutely understand that they're not going to because they, it's not in their interest. Their interest is self-preservation, right? It's the power preservation. So the thing is, it has to come from us, and we have to be really careful here because here's what's going to happen. You're, you, we're seeing it happen. Green is becoming cool, but what's being promoted is a little bit iffy. For instance, it's like that Prius idea. Yeah. The same companies make a car out of all the same stuff except it has a more toxic battery system. They still own and control the whole thing. It's the same tires, the same quarter panels, the same plastics, the same. It's the same thing. It's just instead of running on fossil fuel, it runs on fires you can't see burning where the electricity comes from. Yeah. Nuclear power, coal power. It's the same thing, right? But it's being just because something's green. My bank recently changed to all green colors. And when I go in there, everybody's wearing green. It's beautiful, actually. It's very beautiful, very soothing and calming. And it makes me feel good. I can feel it. But I know it's a marketing trick. Of course. I noticed BP switched over to a green gas station look. Mm -hmm. And somehow when you're picking the gas station, you're going to stop at something the about one that. that's white and green. You're gonna go to yeah, you're like, oh, good. That's good over there. It's green. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really careful here because green, just because something's in a green package doesn't make it a healthy product, doesn't make And you know that and I know that. And, and we still fall for it. So – Unfortunately, green's going to become cool, but it's the elites are going to make it cool in order to use it to preserve their power and probably to tax us on things like carbon emissions and things like that. So we have to be Definitely. careful about what we buy into. And 
I guess not us as much as we have to understand that a lot of the people around us are going to buy into that and think that they're doing what, what we're talking about, even though they're, they're not. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I, it's, it's saddening to me. It's, it's maddening on all fronts. And I, I you know, I, I sit and think about this all the time. Like, what do I do? You know, like, I've, you know, we haven't even, we've, we stopped on earth. We haven't even gotten the water for earth and uh, wind and fire yet. But the reality is that, you know, what do I do about the poison in my water? How can I like, how do I slowly start moving away from it? And even when I go, even if I have it fine, I have like, let's say I catch water on my airship at my house. What happens when I have to go somewhere else? You know what I mean? Like how do, it's like, it's such a, I guess we have to just start reconnecting back to thinking ahead. It's like, how did we, how did we navigate without cell phones back in the day? Or how did we meet up with people at a location when we didn't have cell phones to, to figure out exactly where they were when at that very moment that we both arrived kind of thing. I think we just need to plan better. If we, sit back and look at our life and then think, okay, this is where I am now and this is where I want to be. And then we actually make an action step. I always say who, what, where, where, and why, and how. If you answer those six questions, you will, you will move towards what you want to do. Yeah. And I think people really need to take that on seriously. Like I even take it on to a level that I'm pretty serious about it. I really want to live in an airship. I, I want to, I'm trying to eat as healthy as possible. I still here and there, you know, somebody's like, oh, let's go to Tim Hortons or whatever, the Dunkin' Donuts equivalent or whatever. And and the here and there, I'm like, okay, sure. I'm so used to it. I, I grew up with that. Obviously, I feel this 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 tear between should I really care? Like, well, maybe we're you know, maybe there's gonna be a solar flare and everything fucks up and where there's an asteroid and we're all gonna die. Who's to say that? Like, who, why should I really care at some point? And that's this question has plagued me. But I think. We have to do this. We all have to do this. We all have to move in this direction. We all have to be aware of this, this, this bastardization of, of green and, and all this stuff. But I think I still have hope. I still have hope in, in the fact that I think we can get there. I think you know, we we've got to be careful not to defile our spirit. Yeah. So the thing is, is like the choice, does it matter in your body that much? You know, what's frustrating is when you see these, you know, you're driving by a, uh, you know, Wendy's and out walks this Greek god bodybuilder guy and you're like, how does that dude do that, right? Or you see these gorgeous women, you know, coming out of the hair salon smelling like toxic chemicals. They look so perfect. Like, how can they do that, you know? does it? And you start to wonder, like, does it, is it worth all of this struggle? What I think is worth it is because we, we don't want to defile our spirit because if, if in your spirit, in your soul, in your conscious and awareness you feel that this is important to live this way it's not really about this body or this planet it's about your evolution as a spiritual entity and i think it's really crucial and to make it fun when you're in the city this is my game i have one friend who uh who's always talks about living like a fugitive and that's his thing around all this nsa and the government he's like you got to learn to live like a fugitive <laughs> i think that's a little dark so i like this idea it's a scavenger hunt Right, I like it. it's more like the zombie apocalypse. Except instead of zombies, we have really unhealthy, sick people eating genetically modified demon food. So zombies. I make scavenger hunt. <laughs> so I go if I'm in a city. To me, it's a game. It's like where do I find the healthiest version of those needs that I have? For instance, I want a, something good to eat, and okay, red lobster. I can go get an actual wild caught lobster without their wacky butter on it. That's a wild food, right? Does that make sense? I can go to a nice high-end restaurant and find grass-fed meats. 
I can find, you know, foraged foods there. I can find my way through. I can go to the Montreal Park and find nettles growing up on the mountain. Mm -hmm. I, whenever I go somewhere, I'm looking for where can I find good food, where can I find good water, and then how do I make sure that I'm getting fresh air and sunlight. That's really – so I said those four elements, earth, water, air, fire. That's what we need. We need good quality food, good quality water, fresh air, and good sunlight. And if we have those four things, we're becoming this – I like to think of us, we're basically a sack of water, right? You're a sack of water. Yeah. You can be a sack of really dirty, sick water, like a polluted fish tank, or you can become a sack of clean water that emanates good spiritual healthiness. So for me, it's about how do I make sure that I'm putting the right fish flakes in, that's the food that I eat, the right water into the tank, bubbling the right air into the tank, and making sure that I get good light into the tank so that I can be a healthy emissary of goodness on this planet. So, I mean, that's my goal, and it's a scavenger hunt, and I make it a game. Um, I make it a zombie apocalypse game. That's how I get through it because otherwise it, it can be pretty stressful trying to figure it out, and it's easy to f sort of def sin against ourselves, defile ourselves. And so I think the key is just figuring out how to make it fun for you so that you get that dopamine experience like you have a challenge because we're – like I keep bringing up, you know, this dissociation, this addiction problem that we all have, um, even all of us health gurus have. Um, we have, since we were young, have had a little red button you could push and get pleasure, right? Like the monkey in the experiment mm -hmm. or whatever your thing is. It, it could be smoking. It could be anyway. coffee. could be porno. It could be TV, whatever it is. We all have our button that we can keep pushing. We, we're going to probably keep doing that. So we need to make sure that what comes out when we push that button is stuff that we feel good about. Mm -hmm. So, so <laughs> you mentioned water, uh, and I've heard some of your other, your previous work, but where do you get your water from? Where can somebody get clean water? I mean, everyone hears about reverse osmosis and fluoride and chlorine and, and everyone's freaking out and we don't know whether to believe it or not believe it. We don't know if there's chemtrails or no chemtrails and we don't need, so if there is chemtrails and we don't want to drink the rainwater and who knows, right? And not to say that I believe in any of these things. I don't think, I think chemtrails have existed. I don't think that everything we're seeing is chemtrails. I, I, I know that, you know, spring water is not spring water. Uh, for the most part, and I know that most of our tap water that we have in Coca-Colas and Pepsi and all that stuff is coming from a literally tap water from a city it was a city next door kind of thing, you know, from Toronto in our case. And it's, I don't know where to go. I don't even know where to go anymore with it. You know, I'm drinking water here. It's straight out of the tap. We've got a reverse osmosis filter. I don't know. I don't. I really don't know. Where, where are you getting your water? So I, I get my water from a spring um, about 10 minutes from my house. I have large, uh, let's see, I'll flash my water bottle at you there. You can see that water container. Oh, nice. Um, so I bring big glass bottles to a spring, and I fill them up, and I, I get a couple weeks' worth of water, and I store that water down in my basement where, like, it's wine, so it stays cool and fresh. And oh, glass. Um, in glass. Now, this is something I've been doing for a long time, so um, I understand that that's a kind of an advanced practice on it. But um, in my studies of water, remember I was saying before about what's the last known point, right? Mm -hmm. The last known point for me is that Neolithic revolution. It's before we move into cities. You know, civilization refers to people who build cities, mm -hmm. not cultures, right? So we have indigenous cultures, but there aren't indigenous civilizations because those are city-building people. So when people build cities, as you know, they have to start dragging resources in from outside and exploiting to feed the city, right? Mm -hmm. This case with water, we end up in a really crazy situation. This is one of the least talked about things in the world of health, unfortunately. 
you picture a city like where you are in Montreal. Imagine we could make the whole city transparent so we could see the piping infrastructure. Imagine that like we had x-ray vision and you could see all the water piping. Yeah. Now, the point of origin for the water in your cup right now to that tap could be miles and miles of miles. And it's not like you turn on the tap and the water from the source just comes right out. The water that's it's coming slowly through miles of piping, which means the whole time it's in contact with whatever those pipes are made of. Now, United States, it's just a shocking thing, but most of our piping comes from the Lincoln administration. This is old stuff, rotting down. And next to it is all the sewage piping infrastructure that's also breaking down, and there's a lot of cross-contamination, obviously, because these things are buried underground. The sewage is leaking. It's mixing with the water, blah, blah, blah. They're solvents. That's not even just there. I mean, we're throwing our sewage directly where we get the water in the first place, right? Exactly. So, I mean even if, even if that's not happening, even if we have like the greatest pipes and we live in a new condo building in a new area, even if for, for, for all whatever purpose, for all purposes, you still got sewage in your water. Anyway, yeah. continue. In many, in many cases, the cities are recycling sewage water into tap water, which is why we see things like birth control and pharmaceutical drugs showing up in the water because mm -hmm. it's stuff that people have eaten and peed out mm -hmm. that is not filtered out. So people, in some cases, are drinking urine from other people, but uh, side point. So, um, my, the point is here is that this water is going through lots of infrastructure getting contaminated, and that's why chlorine has to be delivered to the taps so that when you turn it on, there's no way you can sue because you got sick because chlorine's being delivered, which means that you have an antibiotic present so that no bacteria can be living in that water when you turn on the tap. Now, that's a really good thing in certain ways. In certain regards, we're lucky to have that because you look at the third world where a lot of people are actually getting you know, dysentery and dying of diarrheal diseases because the water doesn't have that. But the problem is the water's dead. It has an antibiotic in it, bleach, it's dead. Mm. Um, when we do RO, we also end up with it. RO you could think of as a kind of distillation done mechanically so that we end up with a dead water. Now if we go to that last point of origin that we know things were good, we see that the water people were drinking was actually a living water because it contains microalgae that's meant to be present in waters. And those microalgae now we're seeing have effects on our physiology. The one that I think is most interesting is that we see that the water organisms affect our ability to produce serotonin in our brains. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a feel-good chemical. That's like pushing the red button for the dopamine rush, right? So good, healthy water keeps our serotonin levels up if it contains algae. Now, bottled waters have the algae removed because otherwise if the algae would start to grow in the bottle and the water would turn green just like a swimming pool turns green if you don't add chlorine to it, right? Mm -hmm. so the problem is, is that all these water choices that we have have downsides. For instance, we know that the tap water thing, one of the issues is we're consuming chlorine. That chlorine continues to be an antibiotic when it gets into our digestive tract, which is where all of our really important immunobacteria live. Um, the other problem with it is that it oftentimes has – I think in Montreal you don't have fluoride, which is cool. We don't. We actually don't, yeah. Uh, and I've often used Montreal just because I'm familiar with Toronto and Montreal – because um, Toronto does. Mm -hmm. I like to to point out the the obviously there's a lot of reasons. So I'm not saying it's just this. Mm -hmm. But look at the freedom of thinking and art form in Montreal compared to Toronto, which is a much more mechanized <laughs> area, much more automatronic. Mm -hmm. And one is coordinated and one is not. And I think that's fascinating because fluoride um, accumulates, of course, in our bones and teeth, mm -hmm. which is the target tissue. But then its number one soft tissue target is the pineal gland. Mm -hmm. So if the pineal gland is what it's been said to be throughout history, which is our spiritual center, our spiritual point of origin in the body, 
do we want that to become a hardened, fluoridated, calcified stone? Obviously not. So that's a problem. The problem with RO is that RO and distillation is that it pulls everything out of the water, including the good minerals which we need. So what ends up happening is we drink a water with very little mineralogy to it, and then we urinate out water that has lots of minerals in it. By and the those, way, just RO is reverse osmosis, just for the people who didn't catch yes. that. And yeah. from a sustainability, you know, there's issues with RO because RO takes about five gallons of water to make a gallon of clean water. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of water wasted in the, in the process. Um, I think RO is great, but it was developed for technology, not for drinking. It was developed for lab settings, not yeah. for consumption. So that water is so stripped down that think about this. If you're drinking water with no minerals, you're urinating out minerals, you keep doing that, you have a net loss in the body. So that's an issue um, that's been identified by very credible agencies like the World Health Organization who's written pretty extensively on that issue because they see it with desalinated RO and distilled water in the third world. So huge issue there. Um, and then the problem with lesser filters like carbon block filters is that they don't take enough stuff out. So they're cheaper and they don't waste as much and they're faster um, and they leave your minerals in, but they also leave fluoride in and they leave drugs in and things like that. So for me, the best solution has been to go to springs. And I know that's a very, it's, a, it's a almost off the wall level suggestion, but I've personally gotten thousands of people to do it. And I created a website. It's free. It's called findaspring.com. And it's a Google map that shows you all the springs that users have found and uploaded. These are springs that are being used by people to drink. So these aren't like random muddy holes in the ground where there's zebra and elephant defecate. Um, these are springs where there's a pipe stuck in the ground and clean water is gushing out and you go fill your bottles there. And usually they're really close to the side of the road so that you can just pull right up and move bottles into your vehicle. And um, they're vetted by the users so we know they've been used for a long time. Um, one of the first springs I started using seriously was just north of you in St. Anne du Lac. And um, I was in Montreal, and I would go up the road, what, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, mm-hmm. pull over, fill up these bottles, and bring them back. And the thing is, is that you would talk to people who had been drinking that water for 50 years who were there filling their bottles. And there was this joy, this, like, childlike exuberance around it, which I was, like, really enjoyed. And you'd be like, well, they look healthy. They've been drinking it 50 years. Okay, this is good. Later on, I really came to understand that the water that comes out of these springs has been sealed down in aquifers. Mm-hmm. Aquifers are deep underground at a level where a level of strata where the pollutants don't penetrate to. Mm-hmm. So they protect, the water's been protected down there. Now, often the water that's down there is older than you. It's older than the city. It's mm-hmm. older than sometimes human civilization itself. The water's been under there so long, it's never been polluted. It's pristine from an old era. Or if those aquifers are being recharged, by the time the water penetrates down there, it's so incredibly filtered that it's pure. Because do you, do you think there's downsides though? That does do you, like some people think? Okay, they they taste well water and it has sulfur and that kind of stuff. Is there is there negative aesthetic downsides? No, let's put it that way. Why? Um, springs are not wells. Yes, I know, and people have a very skewed misconception of those. But yeah. so. Think about this, a spring, it, it's helpful to, to think in terms of food. So a spring is a ripe water, and a well is an unripe water. Why? The well is a drilled hole down into water that hasn't yet brought, that brought itself to the surface. Mm-hmm. So sometimes wells are amazing. I happen to be really lucky where I live, and this well is wonderful. So um, I could drink this water. It's great. But sometimes you break into a pocket of water that's not fully filtered itself yet, 
And so you end up with a water that's high in sulfur and smells like eggs or high in, in iron and tastes like rust mm-hmm. or is high in calcium and, and calcifies you know, the fittings around the sink. That water is a little unripe or not really ready for human consumption. So there's downsides to that. But with the springs, typically if people have been using the spring, it's because it's a really good, clean, low mineral spring. <clears throat> the water tastes really good. Now, here's one of the things about water. Imagine a glass of water. You fill up a glass of water and you leave it out in the sun. Mm-hmm. You leave it out there for a few hours and it gets real warm. You'll notice that bubbles form all along the glass. That's because dissolved in water is carbonic acid. When it's dissolved in water, it's called carbonic acid. When it comes out, it's called carbon dioxide. It's down in the water, and it gives water flavor profiles. And when that water starts to bubble like that and you lose it, it goes flat. Mm-hmm. And we know that with carbonated beverages, like a beer or a soda, we mm-hmm. put carbon in there because it increases the pleasurable organoleptic properties of the, wa- of the beverage. And when those bubbles come out, it's flat. No one wants to drink it. Most of the water people are drinking because of the filtration, because of uh, the poor storage, um, on and on and on, it's had um, all of its carbonic acid stripped out. So it tastes flat. No one wants to drink it. It's one of the reasons people don't drink enough water because mm-hmm. the water's flat. When you go to the spring, the water's loaded with carbonic acid. If you seal that up and you put it in a cool, dark place, it stays in there for a while. Now, after a couple of weeks, you start to notice it's not as refreshing, but water from the spring is really refreshing. Now, of course, it's one of the reasons that people artificially carbonate water because it makes it more interesting to drink. Or they'll add lemon and lime to water that's flat because it makes mm-hmm. it acidic and more hydrating. But the water from springs is really hydrating. So when you drink it, it's like, I mean, I've just, I can't tell you how many thousands of emails we've had in the last few years come in and say, the first time I went to this spring and I drank the water, I couldn't believe it. It was like I never drank water before. Wow. So people are not used to being hydrated. I've so, had spring water before, and, and then I can tell you, I can vouch for it. I mean, it's one thing you can listen to Daniel right now, but you can listen also to me, who I'm, I'm going to come at it more of an unbiased approach. Not that you're biased, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. I am biased. Sure, but the idea is, is I have tried it. It is very different, significantly different. It is not well water because I've had you know the old house I was living in where Valhalla's first HQ was um, was well water. Um, my place in Vermont is well water and all of that is all right, but it's not the same as spring water. Getting spring water is a whole new level of, of refreshing nutrient. I don't know. Like it just, it just feels good. It just feels like here. If I have tap water, I have to drink 10 glasses before I kind of feel like my, my thirst is quenched. And if I have spring water, I have like half a glass and I feel, I already feel better. And yeah. there, there is a significant difference that people uh, should should Probably. note and should try. Hydrating. It's the same as food. It's like it's like we understand that if we really mineral dense, nutrient rich, properly prepared fresh food, we don't need as much and we feel better than if we eat food that's high in calories, low in nutrients, been dead for a long time, overcooked. It's just obvious, and it's the same with the water that we drink. And it, I think it becomes really obvious when we th- start thinking about it. So I like this idea of processed water versus unprocessed water. So, you know, we know this idea of processed food, we get that. Water that's been filtered, water that's been processed, water that's been stripped down, water that's been ozonated, water that's been, you know, fluoridated or ultraviolet treated, it's all processed water. And ultimately, what we're going to realize as a culture is that processed water isn't that great for us, just like processed food isn't. But the big thing for me on the spiritual level, I think, is I, I really love 
um, again, you know, I keep bringing up Montreal because I, I spent a lot of time there and I learned a lot about what I'm talking about out there. Great. And being around the Francophonic culture was really interesting because, you know, you see words in a different way when you when you see a word that relates to an, a word in English. And the I word know exactly for, what you're going to say. Yeah, you, the word for spring there is source. Mm -hmm. It really penetrates me because this idea of going to, now let's change it from spring, and I'm suggesting that you go to the source. So when we say to people, you know, hey, where does your water come from? And they say, oh, you know, I get it from the tap. Oh, you get it from the tap? I get mine from the source. I mean, where do you want to get it from? Well, part, of the, part of the reason that a lot of us have rejected the old religions is because the old religions told us that in order to have a spiritual connection, we had to have an intermediary between us and the source of life, right? The source creator, then the priest, then you, and you go to the priest and he communicates on your behalf. And a lot of us said, wait a tick here. I think I can go around right to the source. So when it's water, you know, the fluid that all life forms are made of, water, the thing all your blood is made of, water, the stuff that's in all of your cells, all of your tissues, all of your membranes. It's literally what life is. And, and I could make a good argument that I'll skip for now of why the universe itself is really made of water mm. in its form. It is the source of everything that is life. Why would we want to have first somebody take it, process it, and then sell it to us? Or drug it with mandatory drugs like fluoride, a known neurotoxin, and then give it to us? Right? Why would we want to let anybody meddle with between us and the source when all I have to do is get off my lazy ass and drive, you know, uh, 20 minutes to the source? Why would I skip that and let somebody get in between me, especially when it's my health on the line? Yeah, I mean, we don't want to. That's the whole thing. Ask anybody on the street, would you rather have source water? Would you rather have water straight from the source and super clean and super healthy for you? Would you rather have tap water? Every single person is going to say the source. The problem is they're not – like they don't put their money and, 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 and time and energy where their mouth is and where their, their ideal is. They just – we just accepted it. And I don't understand how we accepted it. Now, I want to move into a little bit of, of, of air. Right, like what? I mean, we all talk. There's pollutants in the air. There's, there's all kinds of problems with with you know, emissions that are coming out of everything. And I mean, it seems like something we can't avoid. I mean, if I go outside, there's cars, there's things. It's not just cars, but that's what most people would point to. What do we, what can we do to to breathe better air? Number one and number two. I think I don't know if, if you talk about this. Actually, I haven't gone this deep into into uh, your work. But breathe better, period. Uh -huh, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, really good questions there. You know, the, the earth is made of four elements, right? We don't, we don't call them earth, air, water, and fire anymore. We call them solids, liquids, gas, and plasma. That's our scientific way of saying earth, air, water, fire. Now, you have a geosphere. That's the solid stuff of the earth. And floating on top of that is the next layer of density called the hydrosphere. That's the oceans, lakes, streams, rivers, springs. Floating on top of that is something called the atmosphere, and the atmos means um, gases or vapors, and there's this gaseous sphere, but it's really thin. So the interesting thing is, you know, when you sometimes you see those pictures from space and you can see the atmosphere, it's just a few miles thick. The analogy is uh, given that if you had a globe, like you know you had back in school, the air, or the atmosphere is as thick as the varnish that holds the map on the globe. So that's all the air we've got. We've got about five miles of it very thin, and everything we put into the air, you're right, goes into the air. Now, you would think, though, 
that if you lived in a really dirty city, like let's say you were in Los Angeles, known for its smog, mm -hmm. you'd think that you should probably close up the windows and doors in your place so that you don't get that in there. But the fact is that your air in your house is always more polluted than the air outside, sometimes as much as 90, 99% more polluted. So we need to first and foremost make sure that we have air gas exchange happening in our environment. So right now you can't see it, but I've got a big uh, window door open over here. And another one over here, and I can feel as we're talking this breeze moving through the house. And I make sure that I'm getting good gas exchange. What we don't want to do is seal ourselves up. Now, when we breathe air, we consume an invisible nutrient in that air. And I'm not talking about oxygen. I'm actually talking about the ions or the electrical properties, the free electrons that are available in that air. We're going to learn more as we move forward. The research is already coming in, but it's not filtered into our collective paradigm. We're going to realize that we actually are really bioelectrical and that we really subsist on electrons mm -hmm. and that electrons are really crucial to our health. Um, one of the reasons that – You ever heard of breatharians? Just quick. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's just crazy, but – Crazy. Is that real or not? Don't know. But don't know yet. Yeah. Haven't lot. tried it yet. <laughs> but um, we, we know, like, for instance, nobody's arguing that antioxidants are important for us. What an antioxidant is, is a, is a pigment that has a free electron that it can donate into our body. And that's really crucial to us. When we see now these things like ion generators that people have in their homes, these usually attached to an air filter of some kind, mm -hmm. they put electrons into the air. When, a, when there's electricity in the air, air, just like when water comes fresh from the spring, it's more hydrating. It has, I think personally, what it is has to do with hydrogen. When, when we breathe fresh air, there's something electrical in it that feels really nourishing to us. This is apparent when we're at the ocean and there's all this water moving and it creates all this electric current that we can, mm -hmm. we can feel that where water's crashing when waterfalls happen. Right around that waterfall is this air that is so fresh. We feel that when we're in forests, healthy mm -hmm. forests. We feel it up in the mountains. Another time you feel it is right after a really good electrical rainstorm. Mm-hmm zone is knocked down to the surface of the earth it purifies the surface of the earth and there's this freshness in the air now we breathe that in and the air becomes flat i mean so even even bringing it to when it rains right it, it has it has a lot to do with it you said hydrogen and and i i, I feel you on that um but i think it has a lot to do with the water in the air right it's like the moisture content of the air is actually bringing in this electricity you're talking about yeah or it conducts it conducts it and and it's a lot of it is ozone gets brought down and ozone has free electrons. Mm -hmm. So so what happens is we breathe that in and we, we use it up and then it's gone. I give a lot of public talks and sometimes I'll have a couple hundred people in a room and it's really obvious after a couple of hours in there how I'll do this thing. I'll walk over to the door. Usually I'll have an emergency exit kind of thing right off to the side and I'll say to people because the air becomes stale and humid and uncomfortable. And I'll say to people, imagine for a second, you're standing right at this door. And when I push it open, you're going to take a deep breath in. How does it feel? <gasps> that fresh air, like when you've been in a movie and you finally step outside again. Mm -hmm. Think about that's on a kind of a gross level because we have a lot of people breathing the air. The same thing's always happening. We're using up the electricity in our environment and we need fresh air. Now, this was never an issue because human beings never lived indoors until the Neolithic Revolution. So people are adapted. Our 200,000-year-old body form is adapted to being out in fresh air, not adapted to living inside. So one problem is we use up the electrons. A second problem is, is we shed. 
skin. Mm -hmm. And dust is really a fancy word for skin cells. Mm -hmm. All dust is is dead human skin, or in the case of us with pets, dander as well. But it's dead skin, and mites live on that. We breathe that. And I have this. I love to say, if you're breathing it, you're the filter. If you're not mm -hmm. filtering that air, you're the filter. That stuff's getting in your lungs. So when we see dust in an environment, and we see dust in the air, remember, there's no dust outside, mm -hmm. right? There's dirt, I guess, dust, but we don't have dust like we see indoors outside because it gets eaten, biodegraded by the environment. But indoors, we accumulate this stuff, and then we breathe that. Again, like you mentioned, humidity. Often when we heat our homes, especially up in the north, mm -hmm. we tie the air out of moisture so that our noses start cracking and peeling. So, you know, the, in the, in the, I think really probably the most pertinent piece of all of this is the fact that the stuff we bring, the manufactured goods that we bring into our homes, this computer that I'm talking to you on, that mic I see in the background, you know, the paint on our walls, all of it is outgassing these um, volatile organic compounds like formaldehyde being a great example. And then we breathe that, and that gets in our blood. So uh, what are our solutions? Here's some solutions for you. Here's some things that I like to employ. Keep your windows and doors open as much as you can, um, as much as is reasonable. I push it pretty far into the season. And I let my home get pretty cool. Um, have plants. House plants like the one in the background there is actually eating the formaldehyde from your air and locking, it, breaking it down and locking it down into the soil. It's an so oxygenating plant. It really is, actually. I went to, we do work for the Garden Center. They're one of our sponsors at Valhalla. They give us like uh, thousands of dollars worth of trees and stuff, and we're doing websites and videos and things for them. But... We did an episode, and it's in French, and we have dubbed in English. But it's one of the uh, one of the plants that actually oxidizes your house, and it, and it actually eats up exactly what you just said. It eats up some of the, the, the negative, stale air, in a sense, that we have in our homes. So yeah, yeah. So NASA studied this because they were concerned about putting pilots into these formaldehyde-rich sealed environments in space because all of that new NASA stuff outgasses. So they took a bunch of plants and they tested which plants were best at eating volatile organic organic compounds and exchanging gases in the air. So there's a great study online, you can find that. But, but the point is bringing houseplants into your house is crucial and it's really important that the spot where the soil meets the plant is exposed. Mm -hmm. If that's covered, you get less of this exchange. So having some plants in your house is really important. Um, I like having an ion generator if I have to seal the house up, protect it, particularly in the uh, winter. Those are much less expensive now. You can get those for under 100 bucks. Um, and having a HEPA filter, that's a high-efficiency particulate air filter. Those suck in all that dust and particles, smoke, soot, stuff from cooking. I've never heard of that. Yeah, so a HEPA filter pulls in particles. It can't take gases out of the air, but it can take all the little particles out. And one filter can be moved around your house, and you can clean all the air in your home. So yeah, just, just a, one thing I just noticed and I just thought about, and I was – you know. People don't think they're like, oh, there's not that much stuff in my in my house, and I clean, and I dust, and I vacuum, and all this stuff regularly. And yeah, great. I'm sure that actually helps remove some of the particles. I mean, reality is you're probably just stirring them up and actually putting them up in the air again just for them to refall. But the, the best way to know if you have stuff in your air right now is if you look at a window, let's say in the basement, and you see the sun beaming through the window, and you can see these almost like dust particles and these particles floating in the air, that's how you know. Like we, we talk about we don't see what the pollutants in the air. You can. You can see those dust particles and all those things. If you look at sun beaming into a house or in through a window, you will be able to see it if you look at it at the right angle and stuff. So That's the whole room, so it's not just that shaft. It's not just that shaft, yeah, of course. 
And then you are filtering that stuff, a bio filter, you become that. So a high efficiency particulate air filter, a HEPA filter will pull that stuff out really, really fast. And you don't need to, you know, you can run it once a week to keep that maintenance up. And the ion generator, here's another interesting thing. The ions actually, because those particles that are floating in the air are positively charged electrically. Mm. So the ions you generate will glom onto them electrically, they adsorb, and then they become heavy and they drop to the floor. So that's happening outside in fresh air, but it's not happening in our homes and we've used up the electrical properties. So outside of obviously the big picture, which is that you know, Homo sapien as a species needs to become more conscientious about the ocean of air that we have, that limited small five-mile ocean of air. Um, in the meantime, each of us can make sure our habitat has clean air. Um, and I think when that happens, it's similar to when you have good water. When you don't have good water, you don't feel that you don't want to drink that much. Mm -hmm. When you don't have good air, you don't want to breathe that deeply. I notice I'm a very sensitive to um, allergens and things in the air. And I've always noticed when I'll go into a place with really stale, stale air, my body slows down its breathing and doesn't want to take full deep breaths. But then you go out in nature and it's like, ah, oh, it feels good to breathe. Like you get into a forest, get to the ocean. Breathing is a pleasurable experience. Mm -hmm. So part of getting you know, into deeper breathing without even having to go into any kind of yogic practices or anything like that is just being around clean air makes you want to breathe again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's well said. That's very well said. I mean, I'm, I'm suffering from a little bit of allergies and kind of a little bit of a cold or something. It's kind of coming, coming together for me right now. And I was outside. I went to the garden center earlier this morning and I was breathing there and all my sinuses, everything cleared up. I would say everything felt better. I was, I felt like I was in the right environment. And now I come into this house and, uh, so, you know, we started this podcast soon after at this point, I'm a little bit more stuffed up already. And I'm, I'm glad that